2: L.A.S. Studios. You're listening to Imperfect Paradise from LA Studios. I'm your host, Antonia Cerejido. This is the final part of our four part series, Nuri and the Secret Tapes, an exclusive look behind the scenes of the LA City Council tape scandal. In the last episode, we challenged Nuri Martinez on the specific racist and demeaning comments she made in the secret recording. One of the things that did happen was this larger conversation about how we talk about race in our communities. And in many ways, I think that part of it is good, like that we try to have. You know, I wish I can dive more into that because what this has caused for me is I don't even know if I'm the right person to even have these conversations anymore. In this episode, we examine the ways that the L.A. City Council has changed since the scandal a year ago. We talked to LA City Council members Eunices Hernandez and Nithya Rahman about the limits of representational politics.
3: Time and time again, we've seen reflections of leaders who look like us, who are supposed to represent us, making decisions that totally throw our communities under the bus.
2: And their vision for the future of progressive politics in LA. That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise from LA Studios. It's been a year since the L.A. City Council tape scandal, and in that time, a lot has changed. There's an effort underway to try to reform the redistricting process. Nuri Martinez and Gil Cedillo are gone from the council. Only Kevin DeLeon remains. And there are new city council members who are trying to chart a new way forward for the city, away from what they describe as old-style identity politics and towards a new progressive future. LAist correspondent Frank Stoltz has been reporting on all the ways the council has changed in the past year. Hi, Frank. Thanks for joining
0: me. Hey, Antonia.
2: So, obviously, former council president Nuri Martinez and council member Gil Cedillo are out. Who has replaced them, and what are their politics? How do they differ from their predecessors?
0: Sure. Let's take Gil Cedillo first. Mm -hmm. So, 32-year-old Aonisys Hernandez replaced him. And she was a community activist with the group La Defensa, which fights to reduce incarceration in L.A. County. Very different resume from Cedillo, who was a labor leader and a longtime state legislator before getting on the council. Hernandez is a self-described police and prison abolitionist who voted against the latest city contract with the police union, which will add about $400 million to the LAPD's budget. Uh, Cedillo never would have done that. He never would have voted against that. In terms of Martinez, 35-year-old Imelda Padilla replaced her, and she is actually a lot like Martinez. Both were raised in the eastern San Fernando Valley. Both worked for a group called Pacoima Beautiful. In fact, Martinez was Padilla's boss there. That's interesting. Yeah, they're even said to be friends, although Padilla didn't talk much about that during the special election campaign for obvious reasons. Padilla has a lot of the same politics as Nuri Martinez. And uh, she's only been on the council for a couple of months. So, you know, we don't know much about her governing style just yet.
2: Right. And, And what do you think it means that in Nuri's old district, they elected someone who is more of a moderate, similar to Nuri in her politics?
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of dynamics to any election and this one was no different. But I think at the root of it was Padilla presented herself as someone who was more of a homegrown candidate from the district than her opponent. Somebody who understood the needs of this mostly working class district. She still lives there with her mother in the house uh, they grew up in. And her father was a union laborer.
2: Wow. It's a very similar background, I feel like, to Nuri's.
0: and, And that resonated in the same way that Nuri Martinez did with residents. The tape scandal also did not necessarily loom large in the election. There was talk of, you know, increasing trust in government during the campaign, but not a lot of Nuri bashing.
2: Did the tapes propel more progressive people onto the council? And are you seeing them enact more progressive policies now?
0: Yeah, I think it propelled more anti-incumbent candidates onto the council. In some cases, that meant more progressive candidates challenging incumbents. But overall, yeah, the council has become more progressive. You saw a split vote on the big raises for LAPD officers that I mentioned earlier, although it passed. But there was a split vote with three progressive members saying no. That doesn't usually happen on LAPD contracts. I think Mayor Karen Bass has played a role here in calling for a more unified council and in focusing less on police involvement in addressing homelessness so I think Mayor Karen Bass is obviously a progressive, and that's influenced the council.
2: You know, I think in a lot of ways, Kevin DeLeon expressed resentment of Black political power more forcefully than anybody else on the tapes. He said that comment about, you hear 25 Blacks and they're shouting like they're 250, and yet he's the only one who managed to stay in office, and he's running for re-election. How do you explain that?
0: Stubbornness. I think he just wasn't going to leave and doesn't really, in the end, believe he did anything at least seriously enough wrong that he should resign. You know, he's talked a lot about how his constituents are forgiving him. He's done a lot of food giveaways. He's doing a lot of, you know, events in the community where he's in contact with a lot of constituents, you know, and by his account, you know, a lot of them have expressed forgiveness And so he's thinking he's going to win re-election.
2: I actually think this is really interesting because obviously in the podcast, one of the things I really wanted to get into was what were Nuri's policies. Like, obviously, we heard her say these very offensive, demeaning things on the tapes. But I wanted to understand more of, like, what was her worldview? And with Kevin, we asked him for an interview. He ultimately didn't agree to be interviewed by us. And I'm curious, like, how do you understand Kevin's ideology? Like, what's his platform? What does he stand for?
0: Well, I think he he says that he's done things like created more housing for unhoused people than other candidates
2: in his district.
0: He has Skid Row in his district. He's created, uh, I think, a couple of tiny homes projects. He likes to talk about his record in the state legislature as well. And he had a pretty progressive record there.
2: At one point, people were comparing Kevin to. Bernie Sanders when he was running against Dianne Feinstein for U.S. Senator of California.
0: He was once loved by progressives. Uh, Of course, you know, that's no longer the case. A lot of allies have left him, but he thinks that he has a record that the constituents will appreciate. Let's
2: talk about redistricting. One of the big things that people took away is that redistricting, the way it was talked about on the tapes, was this very like racialized, zero-sum sort of process Are there any plans to reform redistricting? How is the council looking forward on the issue of redistricting?
0: In the months after the tapes were released, the council president, the new one, Paul Krikorian, created an ad hoc committee on governance reform. And the idea is to create an independent redistricting commission that would draw council district boundaries every 10 years based on the census. And so it would take it out of the hands of the city council. And that's what this whole meeting was all about. This meeting that we heard on the tapes was about redistricting and drawing the lines in a way that would help these folks maintain their own political Mm -hmm. power.
2: I was so confused because there is an independent redistricting commission. And I'm like, okay, so then what is the deal here? And the answer is that It actually isn't independent because the council itself has to vote on the map. So I think that's what the big difference is, right? So there was a commission that was coming up with a map that was supposed to be independent, and then the council would approve or disapprove it. So it really wasn't fully independent because no matter what, the council was going to weigh in on whether they said yes or no to the map. Right. Yeah, And
0: this this group didn't like the map that was being presented by the so-called independent redistricting commission. Right, so
2: so-called because they eventually would have to vote on it.
0: Right. And the the commission is appointed by members of the council. Anyway. Right. So
2: how could an independent could it be if like the members themselves are like, I want this person to like fight for me in these meetings?
0: Yeah. And so the council is looking at having a process where the city clerk and the ethics commission pick a commission that's independent that operates totally separate from the city council and decides on what the boundaries should be based on the stuff that it should be based on, which mm-hmm. is population size, you know r- racial equity, et cetera.
2: What about this idea of expanding the city council, including more council members than just 15?
0: And this is easier to understand, right? Expanding the number of council members. And there are 15 council members. You have 51 in New York. You have 50 in Chicago. A lot of big cities have a much bigger city council. Because it's a smaller city council here, each council member is much more powerful than those council people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the idea of expanding it would be That people would be representing fewer people and therefore more responsive to their constituents. And yeah, there have been uh, proposals for as many as 31, which would more than double the size, obviously. That would
2: be a big change, yeah.
0: A group of academics have come up with a proposal to expand it to 25 with four at-large members. And so, you know, that would be a big change. So that's the other big reform that's being considered by the city council. And of course, both of those reforms would have to go before voters and likely in November of 2024.
2: And voters have been asked in the past whether they would want to expand the city council they and they voted no. Yeah. Do you think it will be different now?
0: Yeah, I mean, the argument is we don't need more politicians. Right. You know, these pesky politicians are the last thing we need more of. So yeah, it's failed in the past. There's a lot to be worked out.
2: hmm can you talk about any other changes on the council that have resulted from from the tape scandal?
0: Well, so the third item, you know, that's kind of moved to the front burner in addition to independent redistricting and expansion of the council is ethics reform. And that has to do with creating a more independent ethics commission and also to tighten up things like lobbying rules. And this has as much to do with the fact that we've had the slew of council members accused of corruption, three of them already convicted of corruption, two more who have been accused and are now defending themselves. And so if you tighten up these ethics rules around lobbyists Mm -hmm. and developers and campaign contributions, then you might be able to avoid that kind of corruption.
2: Probably one of the juiciest most thorny questions to get into, which is, who leaked the tapes and why?
0: Who leaked the tapes and why? Uh, You know, uh, we don't know the who for sure, but LA Magazine has reported, quoting unnamed sources, that a union bookkeeper bugged the office of the then head of the LA County Federation of Labor, Ron Herrera, because he thought Herrera was talking bad about him to his wife, who is Herrera's secretary, even urging her to leave him. Yeah. Did you follow that? Yeah. Should I say it again?
2: Okay. So it sounds like Ron Herrera, who is the president of the L.A. County Federation, had an executive assistant who was married to another employee at the Fed, and that employee, her husband, was bugging Ron Herrera and trying to get information about him that may or may not be also pertained to his wife.
0: Right. The Federation has not commented. The LAPD, which is investigating the allegedly illegal recording, uh, has not commented either. But there's a twist to all of this. Councilmember Kevin DeLeon and former councilmember Gil Sadio have sued the union bookkeeper and his wife, alleging invasion of privacy, negligence, and the release of the tapes did permanent harm to their reputations. That's their allegation. Sadio also names the Federation, which declined to comment on the lawsuit. We've been unable to reach the bookkeeper and his wife yet. The lawsuits claim that both of them, De Leon and Cedillo, actually never made a comment that was, in the words of the lawsuits, even remotely offensive. And remember, De Leon has, on other occasions, apologized for his comments. And it's true, Sadio was mostly silent in the conversation, but nonetheless was a participant. I just think we have to point that out, right? The lawsuit also calls the whole thing a classic October surprise. The tape was released in early October, a month before the November election. It's a little unclear why they call it an October surprise, since Cetillo already had lost in the primary and De Leon had already lost his bid for mayor in the primary. But they hope to win damages from the Federation and the bookkeeper and his wife, who actually no longer work at the Federation.
2: What do you think the legacy of this scandal is?
0: Well, three, maybe four people lost their careers, former council president, Nuri Martinez, former council member, Gil Cedillo, who says it's been hard to get consulting work in the wake of all this and the ex-president of the LA County Federation of Labor, Ron Herrera. We'll see what happens with De Leon, who's, as we mentioned, running for re-election. He believes his constituents will have forgiven him. And so maybe he will live on. Another takeaway is be careful what you say in private meetings, (laughs) Right.
2: Well, we're actually about to hear from a council member who expresses that that was one of her takeaways.
0: Absolutely. I believe it. But seriously, the the scandal reminded us that while race relations are pretty good, given how diverse the city is, there remains this level of racial tension. Here was a group of four powerful Latino leaders secretly lamenting how black people who make up 8 percent of the population hold three of 15 council seats and Latinos who make up half the city hold just four council seats. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot. It makes sense. Tensions rise during the redrawing of council district boundaries. And this is really why it is so important to create structures like an independent redistricting commission to take the backroom dealing out of the process.
2: Thanks so much, Frank. Thank you. No charges related to the secret recordings have been filed. And the Los Angeles Police Department is continuing its investigation. After a break, we hear from two of those progressive-leaning LA City Council members about their vision for the city.
1: Like a lot of my donors, for example, were people who had never donated to political campaigns before. I was their first political donation. That's coming
2: up on Imperfect Paradise. Welcome back to Imperfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Cerejido. The progressive shifts on the city council were already starting to happen before the tape leak scandal. In 2020, Nithya Raman, a Democratic socialist, won a seat on the city council defeating a more moderate incumbent. I
1: was definitely somebody who came in from a new political consciousness that I think is rising in Los Angeles from a new generation And I'm not even necessarily talking about age when I talk about that, but just a new generation of activated people who want to engage in local politics. And those were the people who got involved with my race. Like a lot of my donors, for example, were people who had never donated to political campaigns before. I was their first political donation. People who volunteered for my campaign had never volunteered for any other politician before. And these were just people who were activated post-Trump and post-2016 and really wanted to get involved. And felt helpless in California because we were definitely going to vote Democrat anyway. And thought to themselves, how can I do something here now that makes me feel like I'm taking action on the issues that I care about? And found an outlet.
2: Nithya and Nuri Martinez served on the council together for nearly two years. I asked Nithya how her policies compared to Nuri's. I know that's a huge question, but. Yeah, that is a huge question. In in, in like broadest strokes. Yeah, like where were the differences?
1: There were a lot of areas where we overlapped significantly. But there are issues on which the ways in which I think about how the city uses its powers are really, really different from the way that Nuri thought the city should be using its power. One of the starkest differences was on the issue of homelessness.
2: Nuri supported a policy that would make it illegal to camp within 500 feet of daycares, schools, and parks. Nithya voted against it
1: ban camping all you want, ban homelessness all you want. But unless you address the fact that these people don't have homes, they are still going to be on our city streets. And so I was like, why are we wasting our time talking about expanding these restrictions on camping when we haven't talked about the most important thing, which is how are we going to find these beds and how are we going to find them tomorrow?
2: (laughs) We've talked to some folks who are close to Nuri who sort of hypothesized or told us that they think that she felt like She was a progressive. She hasn't changed her ideology, but actually, like, the left in Los Angeles has moved away from her position. So it's not that she's changed, but, like, the world around her has changed. What do you think about that? Part of what's exciting about, for me, about being here in this role
1: right now is that not all the questions about what it means to be a progressive at the city level have been answered. There are a lot of people who think of themselves as progressives who have... Literally the opposite views from each other on whether you should have more apartment buildings being built in Los Angeles or not. And some of the people who would describe themselves as, you know, very, very left-leaning, even calling themselves socialists, would feel very differently that you shouldn't be building new housing, that all you should be doing is protecting people in their current housing And blocking all new buildings from coming into neighborhoods because it leads to gentrification and it kicks people out of their neighbor, you know. And so the idea that somebody is progressive and that the meaning of progressivism changed around them, we haven't figured it all out yet. Those are still
2: open questions. Do you think that this incident has shaped the way you think about politics? The tapes themselves? Yeah, and just how everything sort of unfolded. There was like a lesson to be learned.
1: Um, just always watch what you're saying.
2: Really? (laughs) Have people become more paranoid since it?
1: No, I don't know. I think for sure I have definitely taken more care in my private individual conversations that I'm having with other people. Not because I think I'm going to be taped, but just because I think I have a recognition of what it means to have private conversations go back to other people and saw the pain that that wrought on the city, and Mm -hmm. I'm just a little bit more cautious about it.
2: I thought Nithya's lesson learned was going to be something about policy, but really, for her, it was a personal lesson about how to behave as an elected official and the complex relationship between politicians and their constituents.
1: I see our role in council overall, particularly during a time like this where the city is struggling so much, and where we have these issues that are at the forefront of people's minds in LA that give rise to so much frustration and anger. And we get all that anger here in this council office. We get it in emails. We get it in phone calls. I see my role as just trying to solve the problems, but also to generate patience, to generate faith in government, to de-escalate that anger and to bring people into the, our shared process of trying to address these issues as opposed to living in conflict with the public. Like, I don't want to be in that situation anymore.
2: How do you feel that negativity has impacted you or could impact a city council member?
1: We're yelled at. We get terrible emails sent to us. Our staff is yelled at. There's so much negativity and frustration that comes our way. And I feel for people when they're reaching out to us, I'm frustrated too. Like, that's why I ran for this office. Like, I wasn't a politician before. Like, I share their frustration. I share their impatience for change in Los Angeles. But if you are like me and you are a person who came into this work with a lot of empathy and open heartedness, being in this particular role can leave you very, very wounded. And so I think to protect yourself, sometimes you have to build some calluses and move forward. I haven't done a very good job of that so far. And, you know, I cry a lot. (laughs) You know, you have to find a way to be stronger through this for sure. To find a way to, like, move through this without letting that anger cripple you or prevent you from being able to move through your day or be loving to your kids or to your partner. It's very tough. It's very tough. It's very real.
2: (laughs) When we come back, we'll talk to someone with a very different vision from Nuri of what the future of Latino politics looks like in
3: L.A. Because time and time again, we've seen reflections of leaders who look like us, who are supposed to represent us, making decisions that totally throw our communities under the bus. That's after the break.
2: Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however, you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash paradise.
0: Flash flood warnings across Coachella Valley. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm
1: Erin Stone, the climate emergency reporter at LAist. Desalination really should be considered as a last resort. I bring you the information and connections you need to understand, cope with, and prepare for the changes caused by the climate emergency. Potential for what's called landspouts, which are basically like mini tornadoes.
0: LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism.
2: You're listening to Imperfect Paradise, Nuri, and the Secret Tapes. I'm Antonia Cerejito. At the time the Secret Tapes were recorded, in the fall of 2021, Eunice Hernandez was challenging Gil Cedillo for his seat on the L.A. City Council. And on the tapes, they mention Eunice's, although they can't pronounce or remember her name. This is union leader Ron Herrera, followed by council members Kevin DeLeon and Nuri Martinez. This isn't any 31-year-old rookie running.
1: Just running on her own. Yeah, yeah.
2: she's not running on her own. She's not running on her own, Ron says. At the time, Eunice's was backed by several progressive groups. The Democratic Socialists of America endorsed her. Nuri calls her a kid.
3: This kid? Eunice? Whatever name is? I met her for the first time the other day. She came. I
1: don't know who she was. She
3: introduced herself. I don't know. I've never met her.
2: The comments that they made about you specifically, like they, you know, acknowledge that you're like a Latina candidate, but they were somewhat dismissive. They're like, we don't know her, basically. How did that make you feel? And did you have that feeling before you heard the tape? Did it surprise you? Did it confirm anything for you?
3: I mean, they were not people that I prioritized having in my life. So I didn't have a relationship with many of them, even though one of them was the representative of a district that I've lived in my entire life and that I eventually was running against right at the time. And so it doesn't surprise me. They don't know me and they were not people that I was trying to build with. I was in community building coalitions, building tables, building places where people can get together to build their power, to advocate, to convince different levels of bureaucracy. That's where I was at. And so I wasn't surprised. I wasn't hurt by it. Again, it was more like, yeah, you didn't know me. So you didn't know what the power is that we had behind us.
2: After the secretly recorded conversation took place, Eunice went on to defeat Gil in the primary and then win the general election. She took office in December of 2022. And she defines herself as very different from Gil, Nuri, and Kevin.
3: I grew up in Highland Park, have lived there my whole life. My dad does terrazzo work, like kind of like the flooring that you see in the Hollywood Boulevard, the, yeah. the, that kind of flooring. Cool. And then my mom works at the LA Convention Center.
2: When Eunice was growing up, she experienced personally a lot of the issues that are now dividing the city council and the Democratic Party.
3: I've had a lot of friends criminalized, have problematic substance use, now experiencing homelessness, were evicted from their homes there. I graduated in the 2008 recession. During the recession, we had to rent rooms in our home to be able to pay the mortgage. That brought in intimate partner violence, and we called law enforcement for help, 911, and they didn't even get out of their cars in that moment. And so those different experiences are really what drove me to say, oh, maybe I could be the police officer that would have helped me in that moment.
2: Eunice studied criminal justice in college, and that's when she started thinking more critically about the justice system.
3: I had learned that there's definition, vocabulary, data to these type of situations, and that they were systemic, that they were not just happening to my friends, and my neighborhood, and my loved ones. Like This was everywhere, and I would not be able to change by myself. I wouldn't be able to change the system from inside. So she gave up on the idea
2: of being a police officer and became a criminal justice reform advocate.
3: I've done work in trying to stop jail expansion at the L.A. county level, working with them to advance alternatives to incarceration, alternate crisis response, because it's those things that prevent our loved ones from getting sucked into this system of emergency room, homelessness, jails, and that endless cycle. So that's kind of my trajectory, and I decided to try to fight.
2: Eunice's decided to run for city council during the pandemic because she felt like the council was not proposing radical enough solutions to big systemic problems. And they weren't looking out for the most marginalized.
3: We talk about, you know, the stories of underdogs, right? I'm for the underdog that's under the underdog that's under the underdog. That's, that's who I'm fighting for because it's those communities who have been most left behind. It's those communities like black trans women who are at the end of a lot of horrible policies. You look at all the different systems, and it's them who are the most impacted. So for me, it's who are the people who have most been left behind, who have been forgotten, who have been erased. And so my ideology is like fighting for the the most vulnerable communities without throwing any other communities under the bus.
2: Unices is in her early 30s, and by the time she got involved in politics, the era of firsts for Latinos in California politics was over. There was a Latino U.S. senator, a Latina City Council president. There had been a Latino mayor and speaker of the California State Senate. Unices felt less concerned about simply getting more Latinos into elected office. Do you think that people of a certain community better represent people from that community? Like, do Latinos better represent Latinos? Or would a Black City Council member better represent a Black community?
3: I think identity politics in that way can constrain us from meeting the needs of our district and the people who live there. And so I think there can, yes, be a lot of benefits, but also it's like, does your representative meet your needs? Do they meet your values of that district? Because time and time again, we've seen reflections of leaders who look like us, who are supposed to represent us, making decisions that totally throw our communities under the bus.
2: LA's population is just under 50% Latino, but when Nuri Martinez was on the city council, the council was barely over a quarter Latino. This was a big concern for Nuri and the others on the secret tapes. I asked Eunicees if she felt the
3: same way. I think it's some immature analysis. Like We talk about representation, but I would love to see trans people, gender nonconforming people on the council. We need more experiences, people who share our values. That's what is important. Like, does a person that you're voting for care about the same things you do? And if they do not, then why would you vote for them? So I think voters in our communities need to think about this a little bit deeper when they vote for someone. That Not just that it looks like them and that we talk like them, but that we actually want to help them and value them.
2: Did you see Nuri as an inspiration prior to the tapes being released?
3: The times that I found most challenging to watch the city council meetings was oftentimes when she would say things that landed hurtful on me around our immigrant communities or people impacted by the criminal justice system or saying some folks were hardworking and others were not. Like, that's a lens that dichotomizes and makes one group deserving while it makes another group undeserving. This criminal justice system is very racist, and it impacts everybody. Hardworking, not every doesn't matter. And I think her ideology is, is reflective of, like, we need to fight for the hardworking folks. And I'm with you on that. But that doesn't mean that we can't fight for everybody else, too. Do you
2: think that she can come back to public service ever?
3: I believe that we shouldn't throw people away, and I believe if there is appropriate accountability— and a recognition of that harm right to whoever needs to be a part of that, I think she should be able to come back so that there could be learning from this. Nuri was the only one that took accountability. You feel like the others haven't? Not an ounce of it. And that's disappointing, too, because, you know, I feel like especially Latina women, were, especially like the older Latina daughters, like we're always at the forefront of having to take care of everything. And I don't know what, where Nuri stands in her li- line of, you know, siblings, but it feels like another moment of like a woman Latina having to step up and clean up a mess.
2: That's how it felt, that, you. Yeah.
3: I, I, and it's like, you can't say that it was them and not me and just put your hands up. If you were sitting at that table and you didn't say anything, you participated, you participated. Like, take accountability. It's one of the things that's most irked me about it, that obviously, you know, the president of the Labor Federation had the own accountability process, but here in the political space, she was the only one that, you know stepped up. So that's annoying.
2: A reminder here that Kevin declined to talk to us for this story, as did Ron Herrera and Gil Cedillo. (music) Councilmember
3: Hernandez, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate y'all.
2: When I started my career 10 years ago at NPR's Latino USA, President Obama was in office. And there was a popular idea at the time that if only more people from marginalized communities were in positions of power, we'd have a more equitable and just society. And since then, I've seen a turn in how people think about this issue. Because what we've seen is that marginalized communities are just as capable as any other community of using their power to discriminate against others. The big lesson for me in Nuri's story and the story of these tapes is that as Latinos become a more powerful voice in our politics here in the U.S., we have to think beyond representation and think about what our values really are and how we want to use our power. Next week on Imperfect Paradise, People vs. Karen, the story of one woman's quest to hold the person who falsely accused her of a crime accountable. I think Katie thought that she could just pick on somebody or make up a story about people because
1: she didn't like what they look like. Am I shocked? No. But will we stand for it? Hell no. So, today, I stand in front of everybody in a fight to prosecute Katie. I definitely felt the heebie-jeebies. I didn't feel good, but I thought I was judging
2: a book by its cover.
3: As a mom, I just think I felt, initially, I felt that fear of like, you know, how do I keep my kids safe? And the first time I saw it, I was like, this don't sound right. It just didn't seem real.
2: That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise. Listen to new episodes of the podcast every Wednesday or tune in on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. on LAist 89.3 or laist.com. This episode of Imperfect Paradise was written and reported by me, Antonia Cerejido. Catherine Mailhouse is the executive producer of the show and Shayna Naomi Krokmal is our vice president of podcasts. Emily Guerin is the senior producer. Our story editor is Meg Kramer. Minju Park is our producer. She also scored our series. Jens Campbell is our production coordinator. Ali Bianco and Rebecca Katz are our interns. Our editorial team also includes Tony Marcano, Frank Stoltz, Megan Garvey, and Kristen Muller. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios. Mixing and theme music by E. Scott Kelly. Music by Jay Valle, ex Manana, and Joseph Quiñones at Secondhand Sounds. This podcast is powered by listeners like you. Support the show by donating now at LAS.com slash join. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.
1: This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting a private corporation funded by the American people.
2: As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water.
0: I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley.
2: How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.